I'm your host, Alexander Hefner, and you're listening to the audio podcast of The Open Mind. I'm Alexander Hefner, your host on The Open Mind. I'm delighted to welcome our guest today, Faiz Shakir. He was campaign manager for Senator Bernie Sanders. Uh, Thanks so much for being on the program today. Thank you. Appreciate the invitation. Uh, I'm really glad to welcome you as we consider this transition. Um, What do you think would be most impactful that the Biden-Harris administration can do in the early months of their tenure that can provide the kind of systematic relief to people who struggled, not just during this pandemic, but frankly, over the Trump economy, the Obama economy, and the Bush economy? Right. I appreciate the question because you're talking about decades long assault on the working class. And it would be a travesty, I think, if we just delivered a vaccine and came out of this recovery with people feeling like, hey, you know, uh, I, I, don't, I won't get COVID. Um, this is an opportunity to think about restructuring our economic system. What COVID has done is revealed for everybody. Uh, all of the many flaws from healthcare to the economy. I mean, you think about the fact that 9 million people who were supposed to get uh, COVID stimulus checks didn't even get them. Isn't that crazy? I mean, you, you have a broken unemployment insurance system, you have a broken healthcare system. So from my perspective, you come out of this and you need to ensure that those systems are addressed. I mean, you start, for. I mean, first and foremost, this is crazy to my mind, Alex, is that you don't have people talking about healthcare. Uh, you know, you'll hear a lot of proposals around ec- economy and we need to do this and we need to do that. We're living in a healthcare crisis. So what are you going to do for tens of millions of people who lost their jobs and their associated healthcare? Uh, and, and in my mind, that is an opportunity to expand uh, government-provided health coverage and uh, we'll be pushing for it. And in addition to that, I think producing jobs that are affiliated with that. So you, know, you think about rural hospitals, you think about medical supply chains, we don't have enough uh, personal protective equipment in, in America. Why don't we? Because we don't build it here. Why don't we? I mean, that's just a strategic decision that the president could make. And so I would urge them to think that way. So I, I think you're suggesting what would likely have to be with the Republican Senate authorizing emergency expenditure that would be jobs, um, a healthcare mandate connected with those jobs, but jobs that are specifically helping with the recovery and rebuilding the healthcare infrastructure. But assuming the composition of the Senate is what it is today uh, with the Republicans in charge, uh, what do you think would be the most effective tactics for this incoming administration to to take? Some of the things that I've been discussing with you, Alex, uh, whether we're going to create jobs out of this healthcare crisis can be done via executive power. Uh, You think about the Defense Production Act. It's something that Trump has been very hesitant to engage in. Uh, But really, when you think about what the Defense Production Act was supposed to do, it was supposed to give the president the opportunity to mobilize industry and service of fighting a war. Uh, And we are in many ways mobilizing to fight a war against COVID. And the opportunity that the president has is to say, hey, industry, uh, industry all across America, here's what we as a country need. 
in order to get out of this. And I'm going to take uh, the opportunity through the Defense Production Act to mobilize jobs in service of creating face masks and creating gloves and creating uh, gowns and syringes and vials. And we're going to build them all across America. We could also create the green spaces that uh, uh, that businesses are going to need uh, and schools are going to need in order, order to reopen that we have to put those, you know, those plastic dividers up, but also create them in energy efficient ways. Uh, so those are the kinds of things that you just mobilize industry. Say, hey, I, I've got this unique power. But what you're talking about is just a mentality of a president who says, hey, uh, I don't have much time to waste. People are hungry for action. I can't sit around waiting for Mitch McConnell and the Republican Senate to agree. Uh, I'm going to get stuff done. And you think about even the minimum wage, Alex, real briefly. Right. It's right. like, you know, you, you could you could expand the minimum wage to $15 an hour, even higher for all federal contractors right away, right off the bat. You know, and, and then you could, say, you could also attempt to do so for every employee. It would probably get to the Supreme Court. That's, that's right. That's right. But at least you could do it solidly within the purview of federal contractors and then say, hey, I want to do this nationwide. Right. And who's stopping me? Well, Marco Rubio in Florida, Ron Johnson in Wisconsin, et cetera, right. et cetera. All the senators, by the way, are up in 2022. So you can, you can play good politics with good policy and fight uh, uh, for an active, disruptive agenda, Alex. I think something that says, I'm here in Washington to shake it up. So you allude to one of the two things that seem to be maybe the most strategic and immediate in progressive politics being impactful and employed right away, a $15 minimum wage and canceling student debt. Uh, those two seem to be what the Biden camp uh, is considering as, as its olive branch, if you will, to the strong um, Sanders supporters who uh, didn't sit at home in some respects in, in 2016, but came out and, and deployed in a way that they, they weren't really deployed uh, in 2016 in, in, in support, help support uh, Vice President, now President-elect uh, Biden's campaign. Um, so those two issues are, are most on your mind, but are there others? Yeah, for sure. I mean, you think about at the end of this uh, December, we will be hitting a moment in which millions of people could be evicted from their homes uh, because there'll be an eviction moratorium that's being lifted. Uh, you think about uh, food assistance all across America, people going hungry throughout this holiday season should break your heart uh, to think about that uh, concept. And, it, you know, there is so much need for the state and local governments, uh, for schools, for uh, uh, shelters to have all of the food that they would need in order to make sure the families get it. I mean, you can just start there, at least just providing basic necessities. And of course, we, ha we haven't even gotten into the healthcare issue that I mentioned before of just making sure that people can get free testing treatment. Uh, treatment's still an issue, by the way, Alex, right? Like you, you might have a vaccine, but right now we're in a situation where people can't even get to the hospitals uh, near them. Uh, they're getting overcrowded. Nurses uh, are being stretched. So getting more uh, uh, people hired uh, and hopefully doing it through the public sector, creating good good paying jobs with good benefits through the public sector. In terms of systemically um, democratizing our economy, um, you know, the, the canceling of student debt and $15 minimum wage, have the, they can be game changers, um, even incrementally applied. The other thing that can be a game changer is antitrust. 
But one thing that's been on my mind a lot with respect to the antitrust, the kind of modern trust busting that not just Senator Sanders talked about, but Senator Klobuchar, others, as it relates to the tech industry, is what do you do with the fact that the, these decades of consolidation have left people behind? So I don't even think trust busting at this point is going to solve the problem. What are systemic ways besides canceling student debt and, and a $15 minimum wage that, that can address that? So when you think about the corporate concentration, which you're referring to is creating million, uh, tons of powerful monopolies in America who not only control the economic system, but they control the political system. You're right that there's big tech that happens to have inordinate influence, gets a lot of attention. In my mind, you know, some of the worst impacts uh, of, of corporate consolidation are felt by workers all across America. When you think about the fact that these meatpacking facilities tend to be centralized, you think of all so much of our food production uh, and, and, and millions of small, but even like hardware stores, right? Increasingly centralized. Um, you know, that means that for the worker's perspective, in order to try to clamor and fight for a little bit more of a slice of the pie, they aren't able to do so. You think about like McDonald's, who's, who's making millions of dollars during this pandemic. You know, so many countries, uh, sorry, so many companies that are COVID profiteers making millions and billions of dollars. And yet the workers do not have the opportunity to push and agitate for having one a bit of a bit of that slice of the pie. So what what could actually do the trick there? I mean, we have to raise these corporate uh, accountability campaigns of pushing them, as you mentioned, not only to break them up, but demand that workers have seats on the board and are getting fair shares of the profit. And and in my mind, you, you, we think about Alex. You know, there's a lot of things to hate about Donald Trump. One of the things I think one of the very few things to emulate about him is that the guy was always on the war path. Every day wakes up with a grievance and he's swinging. He's fighting the defense secretary. He's fighting Tony Fauci. He's fighting, you know, or, you know, large multinational corporations across the board. He's, you know, decrying them on Twitter. And what he's doing, he's animating a struggle. He's animating a fight. And I would ask you, Alex, last time you ever heard a large, you know, a major Democrat criticize a large multinational corporation, you know, outside of Bernie Sanders, right? Like who, who is criticizing the behavior and the conduct of some of these large multinational corporations? The answer is really nobody. And so now's the time. I mean, not only should the politicians do it, but citizens should be clamoring, particularly yeah. with these COVID profiteers who are making bank during, uh, you know, one of the worst assaults on workers across the country. I probably could name a number and answer your question on big tech. You know, I mentioned Klobuchar. I think that's fair. Uh, what, I, what I think we're both pointing to is that in trust busting or monopoly combat, there can be systems adopted that are profit sharing that can address the void um, and the inequity from the worker's perspective over these decades let me segue to ask you an electoral question as the person who managed Sanders' uh, second presidential campaign. Um, you know, there, there's been a lot of analysis of why Biden's performance was strong uh, and, and stronger than the, the coattails that a, an incumbent or even a challenger would normally have uh, in the sense that Biden won with a decisive electoral college margin, um, adding to the Democratic coalition, um, but what happened in 2016 with, with uh, Senate seats going down uh, happened again in 2020 and now, you know, House seats as well. But I wanted your, your analysis of why you think Biden 
succeeded where down ballot uh, Dems uh, failed in the House and on the Senate side? Well, Biden is somebody who has been in office for close to over 40 years, I believe. I mean, people, the public has a good sense of who he is, his character, his decency. He's a you know, genuinely nice guy. If you ever run across him, he's always uh, you know, got a friendly word and uh, shake your hand and all those kinds of things that you would expect of a, a decent person. And I, that's come across. It's not just that it's mere like nice, niceness to another, but I think that the nation has seen him, obviously, as vice president. And particularly when you're fighting Donald Trump, that desire for really turning the page and he, he would say return to normalcy or, or, or a sense of um, uh, decency again it had had strong appeal. And what you saw, I think, in many races across the country is Biden outperformed most Democrats across the board. I mean, he was outperforming them strongly. And I think a lot of that has to do with Joe Biden. I mean, I think people liked him. They saw him in the primary, they liked him. They liked him in the general election, uh, especially when you posited up against Donald Trump. The, the challenge, in my view, was it wasn't as if there was a, an agenda, a specific agenda attached to it. And, you know, we would push and argue for, you know, elevating some of those agenda items, whether it was, as you mentioned, $15 minimum wage, taking on prescription drug prices, expanding that public option, you know, during the, uh, uh, um, you know, during our Bernie Biden task forces, we urged him to expand Medicare eligibility age down from 65 to 60, he did so, but didn't really talk about all that much. And I think when you, you know, when you're trying to, generate an agenda and say, hey, this is what I am going to do when I enter office. And I'm going to need to do it with a team, right? I'm going to need congressional Democrats alongside me so that people can see the picture of what it is that you want to accomplish. I think that that piece I would have accentuated a hell of a lot more, right? Like I need, I not only need to enter office, I need to enter office with a variety of people here. Who are, who are going to allow me to pass X, Y, and Z. And, you know, my constructive criticism of them is that they didn't really focus on an agenda. It was far more about uh, Joe Biden as a person. So it, was, it was almost a repeat of the kind of conservatism in the Clinton campaign, which was an assumption about uh, they're likely to be victorious and therefore the, the coattails may be there may not be there, but, but we, we can expect a solid win. During, during some of his earlier campaign appearances, he talked about the importance of a Democratic Senate. But I, I think you're pointing out that he, he stopped mentioning that. Um, well, and, but not only you, the need for a Democratic Senate, but what we are going to do. Understood. But, but like you said, it's startling to realize that he did, he did pause on that. And, and, it, maybe it was in his attempt to run an apolitical or, or kind of bipartisan campaign in, in the pursuit of the normalcy. But is, do you think that had he fought and said it's re returning to normalcy is about electing uh, folks in, who ran and lost like uh, Greenfield in Iowa or Cunningham in North Carolina, uh, do you think that uh, it would have made a difference? Um, because at the end of the day, Biden lost North Carolina, and he lost Iowa. He also lost Montana. Uh, Maine may be the only place it could have really made a difference. I, I guess I, I quibble with the notion of whether, I mean, in my mind, the, the severe challenge now facing Democrats is that we're losing working class voters all across right. the country. And the people under, making under $100,000, certainly people making under $50,000, people without a college degree, uh, those are the people we need to win back. And in my my argument here is to make an make a pitch. What's your agenda 
for a struggling working class and say, Cal Cunningham, I'm going to talk about this. I'm going to need you to talk about this. And we're going to make mm-hmm. this aggressive push together. So it becomes clear. A $15 minimum wage is going to benefit you. And uh, I'm going to need him with me. Let's, let's vote together. But it, it wasn't necessarily the case. And it, I, I took a look at a lot, all the ads, quite frankly. And you, you'd have a hard time identifying any policy issue that came across in this election besides I'm going to save the Affordable Care Act and build upon the Affordable Care Act. To the extent that there was any substance that was discussed, that was the only one in many ads. Other than that, you heard a lot of decrying of Donald Trump uh, in a return, obviously, to, you know, some, yeah. some so, so I, I watched, it, as you probably did, a number of those Senate debates and they were talking about economic fairness. I mean, they were talking about uh, the failure of the, of the Trump uh, tax cuts for the wealthy. Um, they weren't talking about it in the way that, that Bernie Sanders talks about it. But when you talk about resonating with um, blue collar workers, uh, it's not clear if, if there was a kind of tribal um, element in there, some of them sticking around with Trump, but I have a problem with the idea that this this uh, tax the wealthy, even though it's the right thing to do, I have a problem accepting that it, it can work. I, I maybe I'm wrong, but I, I you know it, that's that doesn't seem to be a motivating force. Well, my point here is that when you're talking about an agenda that helps working people, yeah, you have to excite them around it. You have to really discuss it in a way that makes them feel that not only are you credible and authentic about it, but that it is, you know, you are mission driven about doing something about this matter. And that's, I think obviously Bernie Sanders gets that across very clearly on, on the way he talks. And I would urge, you know, more Democrats to try to emulate that. On your point of tax fairness, I, I, I honestly still believe that, you know, most people understand Washington DC is having been corrupt uh, and that corporate corruption is a big problem. And the one tell for you on that is the way Donald Trump talks about, it. despite the fact that having pa- he passed a corporate tax cut, right, that really benefited the top 1%, to hear him go out and discuss this issue uh, or any issue involving uh, large multinational corporations, he makes you feel like he's taking them all on, that he's mm-hmm. trying to drain swamp. He's beating up on them every single day. Right? That's what he wants you to believe. I'm filing suits against Google. Look at me. I'm so, I'm so tough. I take all these guys on, despite the fact that by action, he's benefited them. So I'm my point of this is, you know, like the theater of politics, Donald Trump is smart enough to know. I'm not going around saying, look, I, I just, I just right. threw out billions of dollars to large multinational corporations and I'm doing such a great job. No, he's telling everybody I'm taking them on, right? I'm, I'm, despite the fact that he's not really. However, that's the theater that he's selling. Speaking of theater, as someone who also worked at the ACLU, um, I think another reason that, the, that it was surprising that uh, while there was historic Democratic turnout, there still wasn't a larger margin in, in, in many places and, and that Democrats weren't competitive in Ohio or, or Florida. And when I say not competitive, you know, it's a difference of, of uh, a few hundred thousand voters in, in a place where millions of people are voting. So it's competitive, but just not enough. Um, with, with Justice Ginsburg's death and the appointment of Coney Barrett, um, it, it's, it seems to prove the point that um, when Democratic strategists say, like, nothing will ever change that, that the court doesn't motivate Democrats. Like, well, maybe Democrats will be motivated if this court 
you know, if, if this court makes uh, contraception illegal, like there may be specific decisions that m- will motivate liberal voters. But is your sense that those people all came out? So everyone who was appalled by, by Ginsburg being replaced by a reactionary, they all voted. Or is, is your thought that, that it still didn't matter to enough people and that the Democratic coalition could have been larger, but it wasn't? No, well, first of all, obviously, you know, Joe Biden, I think at the end of the day, will get 14 million more votes than Hillary Clinton got. Right. right. That's, a, that's a substantial jump and yeah, I mean, obviously a surge. However, Donald Trump will have gotten millions of more votes as well, which is the more surprising element. And in my mind, that's about the fact that he's demonstrating to people that he's the disruptor in Washington who is getting stuff done. Right. I mean, he's getting actions that look at getting people on my court. I'm being up on these corporations. I'm quote unquote draining swamp. I'm building walls. You know, I'm, I'm doing things for uh, for my base constituents. And I am in many ways doing it through disruption. And, and people like I think that even in the style and the manner in which he's operating, that he sends he gives a sense of alpha. Right. I'm in charge. I'm in control. I'm taking I'm, I'm, I'm shaking this bull by the horns. And I think in that way obviously generates more excitement, particularly when you think about that working class problem. Like they, they, for many working class people, the government has not been a valuable um, factor in their lives. They don't see it as being beneficial and it's distant. Uh, and then Donald Trump's over there in that distant land, you know, shaking stuff up uh, for me, which mm-hmm. is in their minds a good thing. From, from, so I say, you know, it, with all due respect to your question, I'm like, I think we were building up and have generated increased enthusiasm, excitement around a democratic agenda. It just hasn't been enough to peel off his support. And that's where you have to, I think, look at is as you as you try to bring more people into the political process, which is project number one of Democrats, bringing more you know, people of color, young people who are not yet voting in historic numbers. If you bring those into the process and then you start to peel off historically Democratic voters who have gone to Trump, Mm-hmm. Now you're. That's where I. That's where my head is at. Right. Like we're we're building up a good base of Democratic support for Joe Biden, uh, and have it on the presidential ticket. But in order to win these down ticket races, you're going to have to start to peel. Right. And right. that's what we're not. We're not yet there on, on that score. Is is Georgia the best example of how you can emulate the fifty state strategy? Well, so certainly Georgia. One thing to understand about Georgia and Arizona. Uh, two kind of bright lights for Democrats in this cycle. Uh, and we'll see how these Senate contests turn out. But Mark Kelly winning, obviously, in Arizona, uh, Biden carrying the state, is that those two states unsurprisingly have had significant grassroots organizing, not just in the last year, but for the last few years. Uh, in Arizona, it was largely driven you know, by the efforts to oust Joe Arpaio back in the day and fights against Governor Jan Brewer and the Show, Show Me Your Papers law. Got a lot of people engaged. Uh, wonderful groups on the ground, Malucha and others have been organizing. And guess what? Voila, you know, more people show up to the polls and uh, uh, good things happen for Democrats. Uh, in Georgia, Stacey Abrams was really the kind of the instigator, inspiration of, uh, you know, building, taking her successful gubernatorial run, uh, uh, successful in some respects. Obviously, she lost, but, you know, I was generating enthusiasm, excitement, and then building uh, upon it and, and getting even more people engaged. And I think that Biden ends up benefiting. So for, for many Democrats, that lesson is an important one to take away is that, that you can't just show up in the election cycle. Some of that legwork will need to have been done on organizing on the ground for years and years in advance and can tip the scales, particularly in these very tight elections. And in those states like Ohio and North Carolina, 
Iowa, Montana, where there may be some room for growth. Um, do you think it's, it's the um, open tent uh, approach or, um, you know, that is open tent to a kind of more social conservatism or, or is it um, bringing new voters into the process or both that would, that would potentially make a state like Montana or Iowa or Ohio winnable for the Democrats in 2024? Well, increasingly, we are, you know, we're doing a good job of being a pluralistic um, party, and we're building our tents and expanding our reach. However, uh, I think sometimes what gets lost is we are supposed to be the fighters for a working class in this country. And it, 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 I don't think that that piece of the puzzle um, comes through as starkly and as clearly and as cleanly as it can. And it's not just mere politics. I mean, you and I were having a policy discussion to start this thing. It's policy too. You have to have, you know, origins of... Let, let me ask you that uh, about that to close. Um, short of being Labor Secretary, your, your old boss, uh, Senator Sanders, and, and Liz Warren too, to the extent that they are um, bedfellows on, on economic populism and, and fairness, um, what do you, we talked about the minimum wage, we talked about antitrust, but like based on your sense of Senator Sanders and his campaign, what would he feel, um, you know, was a, a testament to uh, Biden's commitment to, to progressive change after these four years or over the next three years that he would really think that that Biden gave it his all to, to help as much as possible, uh, even with the constraint of a Republican Senate? How would he how is he going to assess that, you think? Well, I mean, certainly progressives helped get Biden into the White House. It was a team effort all across the board. So, I mean, Biden made appeals to, you know, the center and center right folks, but certainly progressives showed up in a big way, communities of color. Uh, and obviously young people showing up in larger numbers. And so they need to be represented within the government. And he needs to also make sure, he being president-elect Biden, that he um, is uh, not throwing them the stiff one, right? That they are part of the factors and considerations that are really going. I think that there's some indications that they are more mindful of, of trying to reach out to progressives. But we'll see when, when, the, when the deal's cooked at the end of the day, right? And see if, like, uh, are, are progressives around them? Are they challenging their own bubble thinking of how to best reach out to them? What, how to, you know, use their powers? You and I were discussing Defense Production Act, Vacancies Act. However, you want to discuss, you know, presidential powers, clemency powers, uh, legalizing marijuana, et cetera. Are you thinking big? Are you thinking bold? Are you saying, hey, I'm, I'm not going to do things status quo? Uh, because I understand that the party is pushing me and the mainstream of the Democratic Party is moving in a progressive direction. I think Biden has set, always been, over the course of his entire life, been someone who wants to see himself as central within the mainstream of the Democratic Party. Right. What happens when that Democratic movie party is moving in a progressive direction? Are you centrally moving along with it? And that's, that's the goal. We're going to see if, he, I think he will evolve, but we have to push and challenge every step of the way in order to get them to, to move the Overton window here. Faith Shakir, uh, campaign manager for Senator Sanders this past election cycle. Thank you so much for your insight today. Appreciate the invitation. Thank you. Please visit the Open Mind website at 13.org slash openmind to view this program online or to access over 1,500 other interviews. And do check us out on Twitter and Facebook at Open Mind TV for updates on future programming.
Continuing production of The Open Mind has been made possible by grants from Ann Olnick, Joan Gans Cooney, Lawrence B. Benenson, the Engelson Family Foundation, Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, William and Flora Hewlett Foundation, Joanne and Kenneth Wellner Foundation, and from the corporate community, Mutual of America.